Good evening, and welcome to the inaugural meeting of the Fleming Foundation's monthly Boethius Book Club. Tonight, we are discussing the Telemachy, the first four books of Homer's Odysseus. The moderator is Dr. Thomas Fleming, who holds an A.B. degree in Greek from the College of Charleston and a Ph.D. in Classics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm going to begin by reading you something. Andromoyendepamusa, Alton gars veteresen atastaliesen olonto, nepioi, hoi katabus huperionos e elioio, estion autar ho toisen ofeileto nostimon emar, ton amothen gethea tugaterdios epakai epi. It's Greek to me. Yes. <laughs> now, this is, uh, I'll talk, I'm just going to talk very briefly. This is the beginning, obviously, of the uh, the Odyssey, and the first. What's the first thing you learn from this? That the Odyssey is written in Greek, and that whatever translations exist, some of them good, some of them poor, some of them terrible. That these tra- that that what we mostly read are translations, and uh, therefore, but that the that there's only one authentic text. I I say this sort of because uh, the bishop. The Rockford Bishop came to our church last week, and he said, uh, "And the 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 man uh, uh, Canon Tallarico, who who uh, was doing sort of the the, the what are you the celebrant, said, uh, well, uh, he said, uh, let me read the translation of the gospel. Well, as if the uh, as if uh, the uh, Latin translation of the Greek New Testament wasn't already a translation. It was sort of fun. Because <laughs> translations acquire a, uh, a, uh, an authenticity of their own. The, uh, the, if, if you knew Greek, you would, you would say, well, we also know from this that it's in no, no, it's in no Greek dialect that was ever spoken. These, it's maybe 75-80% Ionian Greek of the kind that was spoken on the islands by people who acknowledged kinship to Athens and the Athenians, people from Chios, Smyrna, places uh, like, uh, like that, where Homer is said to have come. But there's a lower level, uh, some of it related to the Greek spoken on the island of Lesbos, <coughs> were very early refugees uh, when the when the more primitive Greeks, the Dorians, came into Greece. And then there's a lower level still, which is probably represents the Greek spoken by people in the time of the Trojan War. So these the it's a it's a it's an artificial language that has historically incorporated all these nuggets that go back historically, and uh, and and part of part of what the way they do this because you know this was this was written in a 
the, the, these poems were put together in a several hundred year period, let's say between uh, 1100 and 700 BC, when the Greeks were illiterate, because they had had writing in the in the old in the Bronze Age, in the Homeric, in the period of the Trojan War, they, they at least had we had they had lots of documents of, to run their their uh, kingdoms. But then they, they, they were, they, you know, their kingdoms were overthrown, so they couldn't write. So the things were preserved by formulas, like swift-footed Achilles. These are metrical, uh, metrical phrases. Agamemnon, lord of men, you know. Uh, in this case, uh, much divide, polutropos odysseus, the much devising odysseus. So just from the language, you learn some things. The second thing you learn, uh, if you, uh, when you look at the, if you translate it, uh, tell me, muse, the man. Well, the, the, the poet is saying, he's not telling you the story. A, a, a divine being who is the daughter of the goddess of memory. So this divine being is telling you the story. This is a true story. Not something I'm the poet says, I'm not making this up. A god has put it in my mind to tell it this way so you can believe me. Scripture. Yes, it, this is scripture, and the Greeks took this as scripture. Um, so he says, Tell me, tell me the man, uh, uh, the, the polutropos, somebody who has had a lot of twists and turns. Either he's had to experience twists and turns, as he has. Or he's a man of a shifty character, Odysseus, which he also is, uh, who has who has wandered much since they sacked Holy Troy. Uh, he did everything he could to save his own life and to uh, and to bring about the homecoming, the nostos. There were many poems told about the homecomings of the Greek heroes. This is the one that survived. It's, it's, an, it's the nostos, the homecoming, the return of Odysseus. By the way, we have the word nostalgia, which is a sorrow in our heart for desiring to return home. That's what nostalgia is. It's a very evocative, powerful word. So why isn't, well, he, he, he accomplished, he saved his own life, but he couldn't save the lives of his foolish men who killed the cattle of the sun. They knew they weren't supposed to do this, but they were hungry and they gave way to their appetites. Odysseus, immediately, in the first five lines, we know there's something different about Odysseus. He's had to suffer more than other heroes at Troy, but on the other hand, he's pious. So it goes on. Then uh, all of the others who escaped death at Troy, they, they've come home, all except for him, he was held on this island by the goddess, the nymph Calypso. Now, you see, American guys under, say, the age of 450 will say, well, how bad is this? <laughs> she, is, she is immortal. She, she will never age or get bad looking. She is a sex kitten. She is, you know, so from somebody from the Hugh Hefner stable, except way beyond that. But uh, and she wants to make him her husband and a god. She wants to make him immortal. Uh, 
well, I like my wife and my kids okay, but it's been 20 years, for goodness sake. <laughs> so it's a story about a man who rejects that kind of bliss. He rejects what you might call the, the American dream, as it now consists. He rejects that because he wants to go back to a wife who's now 40 years old. So, and his kid. So that's all he logs for. But his problem, of course, is that we, we know from this prologue that he has ticked off the god Poseidon. Because, and and we'll, we'll only find that out in the second half of the poem because he uh, blinds uh, Polyphemus the, the one-eyed uh, giant who was had the bad taste to be eating all the Greeks who were on the island. And, uh, and, we'll see, and if you, when you read that incident, you realize this is the great mistake that Odysseus makes. Because not content with tricking Polyphemus, getting him drunk, uh, and escaping, he then says, with the kind of incredible passion that Greek heroes have, he says, if anybody asks you who did this, because up until that point he said, my name is Otis, nobody, nobody. I'm nobody, he said, tell him it was Odysseus, son of Laertes. <laughs> well, he, does, he, never make, he never makes the mistake in the poem of telling you who he is. He always says he's somebody else. It's lie after lie after lie. <laughs> and by the way, you know, what, what, what's often called the messianic secret in the scriptures. Jesus says, don't, uh, he won't tell anybody who he is. Yet. Don't tell anybody about this miracle. Just keep this under your hat. Well, Odysseus, Odysseus' mission to survive, he has to pretend to be somebody else. One time, one time, he tells the truth and he urges the hatred of, uh, of a god. Now, this is by the way, this is very deep philosophically, but it's also very simple anthropologically. There's a, a, a friend of mine told me that he was in an anthropology class once. And, uh, the prof it was a big class, big class, you know, theater classroom. And the professor noticed the students were sleeping and nodding off. And so he said, you know, in primitive societies, you never give your name. You have a secret name. You never let anybody... Because if they know your name, they have this primitive idea that you could put a curse on somebody if you know his name. It's like getting his fingernail clippings, his hair clippings. You, know, you there in the back, what's your name? Reading the newspaper. <laughs> Me, sir, who, what? Yeah, what's your name? Me, sir, ah. So, well, as I was saying, in primitive societies, so <clears throat> Odysseus breaks the rule. Now, I'm going to finish up just very briefly and going on. So we, the story, most of the, most of the people who had even heard it the first time would know basically what the story is. Odysseus, great hero, great wise, prudent man and in the uh, Trojan War. He's made a mistake. He's trying to get back home. He, and, and so he comes back home in disguise as a beggar. You never find it. He's, you know, very, again, very much like, it's a very strong parallels in a primitive way with Christ the Supper. After we had the description of Odysseus' plight and the fact that Poseidon, it's a beautiful transition. Poseidon, who is present, preventing him from coming back, Poseidon is away visiting his worshippers or Ethiopia. 
And so he's not present at the meeting of the gods on Mount Olympus. And so this is a, this is a translation because now we go, after having heard that, we're now up on Mount Olympus. The gods are banqueting, and Zeus says, "Oh, Popoy, oh my goodness," he said, uh, "How the mortal men blame us gods." They say that we're responsible for what goes wrong in their lives. And you know, take the son of, take Aegisthus. I sent Hermes to tell Aegisthus to give up the idea that he would seduce the wife of his cousin, kill the cousin and steal the property. Did he listen? No. He went ahead and did what he wanted to do. Now. I told, we told him, when the sun grows, when the son of Agamemnon grows up, he'll come back and get revenge. Revenge is the basis of all Greek moral law. And if you think this is primitive, just remember your Old and New Testament. Revenge is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Revenge is the basis of all justice. Now, of course, in a civilized society, we give that power to, to law and order. In a, not, in a pre-civilized society, you got to get it yourself. And that, that, because we're, we're dealing with a society where there are, no, there are no cops on the block. And by the way, we're almost there in our society, so there are more lessons to learn from this than from maybe any book in the past 2,000 years. So he said, I told him. We told him. And so now he's whining. He's, you know, he's, he's been killed by Orestes. Now, this sets us up for the, uh, uh, a comparison that's going to go through the whole poem. Uh, point number one, and that is the wife of Agamemnon betrayed him and had took a lover and murdered the husband, drove the son out of the house, and it was the son, the son grew up to be a glorious hero. We don't, it's not mentioned that he kills his mother also. This is, a, this is a morally very grave, difficult thing for the Greeks to handle. Homer conveniently just leaves it out. Because the whole point is that Orestes did what a man has to do. Now we have, so then, so we have this whole picture. Orestes has grown up, become a man, he has killed Aegisthus, the moral order is restored, we gods are right. Well. A an intelligent student in the class would say, excuse me, excuse me, sir, sir, could I ask a question? And in this case, the student is Athena, the daughter of Zeus, the goddess of wisdom. And she says, well, what about Odysseus? Everybody knows he's brave, he's wise, he has, done he has been pious, he's done all everything he owes to the gods, he has done right. He alone, the Greek heroes, can't be allowed to return because of the anger of one god? And uh, so, the, the whole question on the table for when you read the book is the same question as the book of Job. Why does a good man suffer? Now, the Greeks are polytheists, they don't, they, and so they could say, well, there's a disagreement in heaven. Zeus's will will triumph in the end. But in the meantime, he's got, it's a kind of like a early American federal system. You know, Virginia may not agree with Massachusetts, may not agree with South Carolina, and you've got to work it out. 
Well, if we're all opposed to Poseidon, he says, we we will prevail. He's a very powerful god. He's Zeus's brother, and when it comes to the ruling the sea, Poseidon is number one. So he is the one who could block this. And you can't just run around and say, I'm sorry, I know that you are among the three or four most powerful gods in the universe, but I can just smash you. Because if Zeus goes around doing things like that, then his own power is destroyed. So they've got to listen to Poseidon, but on the other hand, they're going to, they're going to sweet-talk him out of this and bring it as his back. But the second thing is, okay, we have this hero setup. We know that Odysseus is perfect, uh, better than Agamemnon was, who got killed when he came home. What's his homecoming going to be like? Is it going to be like the homecoming of Agamemnon, where your wife says, let me make you a nice bath, <laughs> just relax, you know, and then kills you? And second, so is, and Agamemnon, and, and, and believe me, this is what Odysseus has to worry about. What will be my homecoming? And we know when he goes to the underworld, uh, he meets, uh, he meets uh, these, uh, Agamemnon, and, 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 and the issue is raised. The issue of the parallel is raised over and over in, in the book. But second of all, the pa- is Telemachus going to be the son that Orestes was. And when they're pushing him around in, in one of the first scenes in the, in, in, uh, in the Odyssey, the suitors are, who are eating him, them out of house and home and trying to marry his mother and bullying her, and he first, he, sa- he says, you go back to the women's apartment, this is something for men to decide. And then, but he calls down vengeance. He said, vengeance will come and will destroy all of you for what you've done. So I will close my opening remarks with just this, this observation. We are therefore set up in the first couple of hundred lines of the Odyssey with, with a couple of different aspects of the plot, but the one t- t- we can talk about mostly tonight is how does Telemachus, who is shown as a spoiled, whiny adolescent, how does he become the man who can be the number one backup for his father in, in the gunfight at the OK Corral, so to speak, with which the poem uh, near the end? And so it's what the Germans call a Bildungsroman. It is an, uh, it's a novel of education. It's, it's the story of Telemachus is how do, you, how do you become a man? Because normally you become a man by imitating your father. Your father's been gone since you were born. You're 20 years old and you haven't seen him. You don't remember him. How do you become a, a, the kind of man that your father would want? How do you become another arrestee? Okay. So, thoughts. How was Telemachus? How was Telemachus's spoiled, whining brat? I didn't see that. Well, uh, for example, all right. I'm, I'm, thank you. I, I did overstate it. But he, he can't. He doesn't know. He can't deal with the suitors. First of all, he's not big enough. He's not strong enough. And their numbers too. And their numbers. But he also has does. He has not known how to form a faction. How to get supporters. 
he is complete at this point. He, you know, he is like he's a teenager. He's an adolescent. He's a loser. He has he has excellent personal qualities, but he can't deal with the situation. Believe me, his father at twenty would have dealt with the situation. He doesn't know how. No, no. He's, he's, yeah. not a, he's not a man yet. Yeah, he's not a man. Well, he's not that's what I was saying. Yeah. A boy has to be taught how to be a man. That's right. And yeah. he hasn't had his father to do that's that. That's right. He hasn't had a father. Now, he's got. He's a wonderful kid. He's got good stuff. But even the way he dismisses his mother, on the one hand, he loves her, he respects her, he, but he could have been a little bit... You know, the Odyssey is not like the Iliad where women play a mi fairly minor role. In the Odyssey, women are really important. You know, you have these, you have the picture like Queen, uh, Queen Ariti on, uh, on the island of the Phaeacians. You have all these, you have, you have evil women like Circe, but you have women play a big role in this. And Penelope, of course, is the model for Greek womanhood. She is, on the one hand, submissive to her husband, but he honors her. By the way, she's, she's, she comes from a higher class than he does. You know, his, a lot of his wealth and power come through her, not from himself. And, uh, and Penelope is the model of faithfulness, and yet she is still, at the age of roughly 40, she is still beautiful and desirable, and everybody wants her. And... She is so she is she's brilliant. She she comes up with these tricks like the the the, the loom where she weaves the thing during the day and then t undoes it at night. So she's so but she deserves more respect than the than he shows her at that point. But he but he's asserting himself for the first time in his life. We have this we we, we are, have a reasonable assumption for the first time in his life. He's asserting himself against mom. But he's always blowing up at the suitors when he should keep his mouth shut. Figure out how to kill them. Don't stand up and bandy work. Because they're laughing at him. Oh, yeah, right, kid. Sure. Come on. But that's a common theme in, in today's literature and yes. movies where yeah. a young man blows up at, uh, at his oppressors yeah. and he doesn't. he's not cutting enough because he hasn't learned the lessons of life. Well, it's it's like the the the, the Toshiro Befune character in uh, in the Seven Samurai. He wants to be a samurai, but uh, you know he's a punk. Yeah. You know he's completely crazy, irresponsible, has no idea how to behave. Now that's an Telemachus being noble can't be quite that punk, but he has still got a long way to learn. So how how does he learn? Well, that's a that's a question that our politicians don't. You, they do not ask this direct yeah, question. Yeah. We have seventy percent of black youths born without parents, and yet they, they you never heard this question posed. Well, who's going to teach them? It's it's yeah. it's well, always you your you are right. It's always the government. Right. The government the government's going to set up a boot camp program. If you're it's going to do this, it's going to do that. Midnight basketball. Yeah, midnight basketball. <laughs> Or, or, or if you want to be if you want to be really correct, basketball. Telemachus travels. Telemachus travels. But for who? Okay, if you're gonna if people are gonna read the book I'm writing, we're gonna be posting on the on our website. Uh, my one of the themes of the book will be it is through friendship that people learn to be moral, not through abstraction. If you want a, a, a 
Who is Telemachus' first friend? Well, it's Athena. Athena. She impersonates, well, it's, of course, Male. his mother, but she impersonates a tutor, and then she takes him in hand. So, first of all, again, we have the divine theme. He's getting, he has a god in human form who, le who leads him. And then, as you say, takes, take, take, takes him on the grand tour to learn what men are like. And to also, he learns what, your, he learns what his father's like. He, lear he learns, you know, I live on this crummy island where don't bother to give me horses because we can't raise them there. <coughs> But on the other hand, my father, my, my father was a man admired by the greatest men in the world. Now this is this probably comes as something of a revelation to Telemachus, because you're living in this jerkwater place, like roughly, let's say Belvedere, <laughs> and, and you 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 go to New York or Paris where people say, oh yes, your father, we all respect him, he's a great man. So that's uh, that's certainly what I'm talking to. Which I want you all to to uh, to, to, uh, to tell what. Yes, my dear. If we think back of uh, say in European kingdoms, a, a father dies young. There are there are relatives who go out of their way to form their own faction to support the underage child. Yes. To make sure that he and their interests uh, see see him through to, to adulthood. So why doesn't Telemachus have this on it? That's a that's a, a very good point. By the way, it would ruin the book if he did. No. <laughs> so that's one simple answer. answer one. The other the other answer is um, Odysseus is really is a nobody. You know, he later later writers concoct a, a beautiful genealogy for him, but in fact, he he's he's sort of like one of these uh, masterless samurai. He's a, he's a tough guy. His father Laertes, who is now an old man, too old to be helpful. He's out raising vegetables in the right. country. You know, he's sort of like Don Corleone in retirement, drinking a lot of wine these days. You know. And uh, Penelope should have brothers, but but for the purpose of the story, she doesn't seem to have brothers, cousins, etc. And so the local elite on Ithaca that should be defending her. Those people instead are trying to put their sons into power. But that's, a, that's an excellent question because normally in such a society there would be a pro-Odysseus faction. But as I said, it would, it would pretty much ruin the book if, uh, if there were. And you know, um, it's rel you know, at the end, you know, you think it's a happy ending. He, kill he kills all the suitors. By the way, not, not one of them survives. There, it's, this is as ruthless as the Old Testament, which for my money is the most ruthless book ever written. This is, this is, they well, but, The Old Testament offends everyone though, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so he kills everybody. That's, that's the end. 
Well, no, they all have relatives. And they all show up armed. Yes, okay, I know my son was a, you know, was an SOB and he was doing wrong, but, you know, a man goes away for 20 years, what do you expect? And uh, so they are going to kill Odysseus to get blood revenge for the revenge he took on their kids, on their, their, and so they have, so the, so the big question is, they have, there is a faction, but it's going to kill him. And so there's a standoff, Odysseus and his supporters, and, uh, and all these other, they're outnumbered, but we have, we have no doubt that Odysseus with a few stout men can take them, but it's going to be tough, but it, and it'd also be wrong. And that's when Athena, you know, sometimes man cannot do these things himself. Athena steps in and says, no, that's it. War's over. War's over. And it's the first instance in Greek literature of the so-called deus ex machina, which they used to sort of bring in on a, on a stage crane. But really, sometimes there are problems where human, be- human wisdom and human courage is not sufficient. <coughs> And the and the uh, the Odyssey, which has so many uh, parallels to things of the Old and New Testament, this is again re- you, the you, the reliant the, the reliance on divine wisdom is necessary. What about the choice between Scylla and Charybdis? Does uh, Odysseus choose Scylla because fewer people will be killed? Other than Charybdis, yeah. where the whole ship may be destroyed, yes. he goes to the lesser number, the lesser yes. evil. I think that's right, although I think it's also, it could be a flip a coin. But, but I, th- I think he's a very prudent commander. Mm-hmm. He does, from the, the prologue, we hear that he did everything he could to save his men from death and to, and to, and to make sure they could return home. And so the fact that they couldn't, the fact that he has to come home alone, is, uh, is, uh, is their fault. Michael. One of my students, when we were doing uh, the Odyssey, was asking uh, how old was Penelope when Telemachus was born? Of course, we don't know. We don't know, but let's just say she was between 16 and 18. Yes, and so the question the child, the student raised was, why doesn't Telemachus have brothers and sisters? I have seven. And, you know, where are they? And why are we in the story? <laughs> well, they, he's the firstborn and then he went away. Yeah, that's why. That's I mean, that, that, that's not tough. She was a blushing young bride. She had a baby. And then Odysseus, if you believe the tradition, the, the Odysseus didn't want to leave. But he was... Uh, and so he pretended to be mad. You know the story? He pretended to be insane, so um, when they came to get him, to recruit him, because everybody... Now, how much how much of this is actually uh, assumed by the writers of the Iliad and the Odyssey? I don't know. This story, I think, is from the epic tradition, and probably you assume it. Um, all of The reason all these guys show up at Troy is because they were all suitors of Helen. And... But, but the father of Helen, Tyndarus, who, by the way, in one mythological tradition is also the father of Penelope, <laughs> uh, 
the father of Tinder, the father of uh, Helen said, okay, you want to court her. This is going to be a problem because, you know, she's, well, I'm not really her father. Zeus is her father, and you know. Um, and everybody wants her, so this, you've got to all swear that you'll abide by this and you'll all back up the winner. So is Helen and Nelby uh, approximately the same age then? <coughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. And, and these drones have nothing better to do but drift from kingdom to kingdom to, to yeah. find a uh, queen? That's exactly. That's right. Wow. So, the what a love. What a life. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Except, except they have to fight their way the whole way. So, the other thing, though, is that this... Now, maybe the idea that uh, Penelope is the half-sister is, uh, is a sort of bogus later introduction. But to but but it does indicate her her her, her high social state. But the story is that Odysseus said, "I ain't, I can't compete with the rich and powerful. They're never. Gonna, I mean I mean really there's Menelaus of Sparta. I mean these, these people are way beyond my social level, my level of wealth and power. So he said, "I'll go. I'll go for the I'll go for the sister or or cousin in one version. I'll go for the cousin." Uh, who is also beautiful, but maybe I have a chance. Is it Clytemnestra? Clytemnestra is a sister. It is definitely in all the sources. Clytemnestra is, you know, the the, the story. Leda and Tyndarus uh, had four children, and of course, in one version, they all get hatched from an egg, because Leda was sexually attacked by a swan. Uh, the swan was Zeus. And so half the children are divine. I think that's uh, that's Helen, and is it? I never can remember whether it's Pollux or Castor. Half the children are divine, and half are mortal. And so Helen is is the child is the daughter of Zeus, Clytemnestra, who of course murders her husband, is uh, is, uh, is is mortal. Dante puts Odysseus in, uh, in hell for killing his men. Yeah. Dante's view of, um, of Odysseus is very interesting because it doesn't come from the Odyssey. Dante hadn't even read probably a Latin translation <coughs> of the Odyssey. What he had read was stuff from late antiquity. Trans See, Odysseus in the Odyssey is a, is a very noble character. But as the Greeks started thinking about it, they said, wait a minute, he's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a fraud. And so there becomes this anti-Odysseus faction in Greek literature until finally, like if you read something like, um, uh, you know, in, like in Shakespeare or Chaucer, Odysseus is synonymous with the wily, treacherous trickster who doesn't care what happens to anybody else. This is not the Odysseus of the Odyssey. But, uh, but he becomes a byword. And, you know, this happens as early as the 5th century. Uh, in, the, the, in classical Athens, Odysseus is almost always a negative figure in Greek tragedy. In, uh, in for example, Sophocles' Philoctetes, in... Uh, Play after play, he's just shown as treacherous and unreliable. Yes, my dear. 
is that more an interpretation of his his character as seen in the Iliad or in the Odyssey itself? It's more in the Odyssey because he's constantly lying. Yes, he is. When 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 I was teaching the Odyssey uh, at Chapel Hill to uh, you know uh, in, uh, to, in in translation as part of one of these huge group things uh, which you subject the undergraduates to for an easy grade. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm describing this meeting where Odysseus shows up. May I figure? I may I think maybe it is on Scaria, and you know he's naked and filthy, and he meets this maid. And she said, well, who are you? <laughs> and he, he, he tells this incredible story. I'm a merchant. I did this happen to me. Blah. And, and, of course, it's really a theme. And, she, and, of course, she rises up and she just looks at him. And she says, that's my boy. You know, in other words, <laughs> you know, one of the reasons she loves him is that he is so inventive and so creative. At the, when you live in a world like... Imagine the world between 1100 and 700 BC, whereby if you left your native village, there were no laws against killing you. <clears throat> Telling people who you are, what you're doing, uh, is, uh, is dangerous. In fact, one of the laws of Greek hospitality, and you'll see it in Homer all the time, a stranger comes, oh, oh, for example, Odysseus comes in. Right. And uh, and they say, uh, well, welcome, stranger, eat and drink. And then when they had eaten and drunk their fill, it's a form, formulaic phrase, and then then the king or whoever it is just said, tell us, who are you, where do you come from? Because, and this is, by the way, true, this would be true in medieval Scotland, same thing. You, you have to, the laws of hospitality mean you have to be hospitable. And so what if you find out this guy somebody related to people you hate? If you knew that, you wouldn't feed it. So, uh, it's, so therefore, you feed him first, then you find out who he is, and then you have to say, if I'd known, I would have killed you before you came in the door. Tom, some of the revisionist pastors of, of today think that Sodom and Gomorrah they, it was destroyed because they were not hospitable. What <laughs> say you about that? Well, first of all, first of all, we know why, why do the angels come to Lot? They come to Lot because they're trying to see if can anybody be saved there. You know, in because in this these this hell town, this. In, in, the, there are practicing uh, the vice that came to be known as sodomy. And so, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the idea is preposterous. Of course, uh, you know, now, Lot is hospitable. He, when they say, bring out those good-looking guys, he said, I'll give you my daughters. But these people are so dejected. And by the way, I think Lot is wrong. I don't think but, you know, I don't think that your obligation to strangers takes precedence over your obligation to your own daughters. <laughs> but it's a real problem in, in the, in, look, in the ancient world, in the Jewish world and the Greek world, you know, if you can't rely on the faithfulness of a host to take you in, you're probably going to be dead 
in the first 20 miles you leave home. So this is a very this this law of hospitality is very very deep. But the whole point in Sodom is that is that they're visited to to to, to find out if there is anybody decent there. They're willing to spare the town if they find five. Yeah, 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 yeah. So instead, all they get is, is uh, all they end up with is Lot. Well, and his daughters, and his daughters, the wife, the wife makes four. So they're short. It is. It's, it's, I've often pondered that verse, though. The fact that he would give his daughters to be raised. Yeah, I, I don't like that. Could I don't it be like that, that just the idea of sodomy was so repellent, repellent yeah. that that yeah. was actually, yeah. by comparison, No, you're absolutely right. That, it, 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 it is a kind of test. Look, kind of I'll, I'll give you this beautiful young girl. Ah, in America. We've kind of gone to the other extreme today. I'll give you Caitlin. I'll give you Caitlin. Yes, my dear. Uh, Professor Scapisi. Oh yes. Why do you sit in the back? Because you can't see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I wanted to comment on, on two aspects already discussed. Um, uh, first, harkening back to uh, the idea, uh, imagining what a upon what a twenty-year-old could fashion any sense of modeling in terms of morality and values, and here's where, even in this very day and age, to whom would that 20-year-old look if the 20-year-old did not know his father? If there are no relatives to support him, then there has to emerge somebody who performs the role of a mentor. Yeah. And so you have the, the concept of mentor. But then, to whom would that 20-year-old further look? He looks around him and he sees the gross behavior of the suitors. Although there's there's debate about the legitis the, the legitimacy of the suitors actually being there. Um, there's a perspective that says that the suitors had the legitimate right to exist there, uh, the legitimate right to move her hair, and the legitimate right to partake of the natural resources that were there. That's one perspective. So that's the suitor's perspective. The yeah. suitor's perspective is that they are usurpers. Yeah. So to whom does he look? He cannot look to these usurpers no. by virtue of their behavior. So you have the concept of mentor. What I find interesting in this translation that I've read, Telemachus is always referred to as wise Telemachus in this yeah. translation. And I, and I began to wonder why. why? I'm, I'm sure there's no consistency to that description. But, but why these particular uh, translators refer to him as wise, because at the outset, there wasn't anything particularly wise about him. If we understand the word wise to mean perceptive yeah, and well-grounded on experience. He's intelligent, yeah. but not wise. Yeah, there is a, there's a wall intelligence, intelligence there that we can assume he inherited from, from the, the, the fact that he is the son, the offspring of both Odysseus and Penelope, who is, of course, Odysseus's true soulmate. I mean, yeah. she is as adept at the ruse as is uh, Odysseus. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the second point I wanted to make was that being born and raised in Chicago, uh, many of our, our family's good friends were Greeks. And this concept of hospitality weaves its way into our contemporary world. John, you, you come from Chicago, and I'm sure you've had friends who were Greek 
I, I well remember when we were in Athens, <coughs> this particular taverna was not quite ready to open. So we went into the back room, and there, there is the, the Greek matriarch. You know, a television is on, but she's there around the table, and one of our participants happened to be Father Andrew Zabib, whom you've met, yes. who speaks Greek. And so uh, Greek hospitality manifested itself. Sure, come in, welcome, welcome. We're not open, but still, we feed you, we feed you. you know? So the idea of hospitality is, again, a theme that weaves its way through here. It's still relevant today. Yeah. Is this an ancient, is this an ancient um, theme or... Uh, a, a, a social uh, dogma that's, that all societies practice? It was certainly a rule. The rule of hospitality in the ancient world was, uh, it was a necessity. The Greeks turned it into a formal moral code. And for example, the word, it's interesting, the word xenos has, has like four or five big meaning. Originally, xenos means foreigner, alien. Xenos can then mean a foreigner whom you hire to serve in your army, so mercenary. But a xenos is therefore an alien who comes to you and is your guest, or and you are as host are also xenos. So the, there is a law of xenia, uh, of foreign there, how you treat outsiders. Now, most of these are going to be Greek outsiders. But again, these Greek city-states in the time of Homer, and even for the next three or four hundred years, they don't have reciprocal laws. So, you know, you know the, the joke we have, what, goes, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, you know, what, happen, what happens in Argos means you're dead and nobody can sue for damages. You know, you get into trouble in a strange town in the Greek world, you're dead. So you need a xenos. The, the great, uh, one of the great scenes in Homer is in uh, the uh, Iliad. Is it, is it book five where the meeting of Diomedes and Glaucus, and, you know, they meet and they, they exchange taunts. You know, who are you? Well, they find, so Diomedes says, you know, my grandfather entertained your grandfather, so we are, or at least could be, Xenoi, guest friends. And so there are all sorts of, you have all sorts of Greeks to kill, I have all sorts of Trojans to kill, let's not kill each other. By the way, there's no doubt, Diomedes is older, he's one of the, like, he's one of the three or four most powerful men in the siege of Troy on both sides, and he could kill Glaucus in a minute, and chooses not to. They exchange weapons, and and and, and honor this commitment of grand or great grandparents, and because this is one of it's the only law of international morality that exists in the Homeric world, and for some hundreds of years to come. The, in, in the Middle East, it was informal. Like in the Jewish world, the Syrians, the Babylonians, you established these relations, and it was important. But in the Greek world, this was their law. And Zeus, worshipped as Zeus Xenios, punishes those who transgress, 
And the biggest transgressor in Homer of the law of hospitality is? The Cyclops. No. Paris. 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 Paris, welcomed into the home of Menelaus, steals his treasure and his wife. My dear? I, I was going to say there are some little stories, I think sometimes they're Homeric ones, about simple people, and they're under the same obligation. If a stranger comes, you take him in because you don't know if it's a god. So you, enter, you feed him and entertain him. But then even later on, uh, in the rule of St. Benedict, he has written out, uh, if a stranger comes, you let him in, you feed him, you give him bed. Uh, and, but he does that because he's practical that if after three days he proves to be troublesome, let two stout monks show him to the door. <laughs> but, but I mean, still the first thing is, and this yeah. by now is Christian, that you take somebody in the yeah. end. Yeah. And uh, I have another more recent story. We know a friend who taught at Rockford College, and uh, he and his wife were sort of flaky academics. And they had two children, and they were driving through Italy. They went to a small town, and their children were very young, and it, they stopped at a little restaurant after hours, after lunch hour. Could you open? And they saw the small children. So being Italians, they said, for the children, we open. <laughs> well, apparently he tried to feed the baby some baby food, and the baby spat it all up, and other people still in the restaurant looked at him thinking, what a father. You know, so as they finally leave, he's feeling embarrassed. The owner and his wife came out with a bag of food, and they looked at him and said very seriously over and over, this is for the children. Because the understanding was, if they were fool enough to stop too late for lunch, they were not going to feed these children at the right time. But in Italy, children got fed. Let's take five minutes to uh, oh, yes. get some wine. Somebody say something intelligent about the Odyssey, or ask a good question, or... Actually, the Cyclops is condemned for not showing hospitality. Yes. Then they sort of come in to his place. Yes, that's certainly a problem. You see, on the one hand, they sort of make free with the place, actually, sort of the way the suitors do. Yeah. But, you know, let us just say, you could say cannibalism is an overreaction. Yeah. <laughs> In some situations. You know, <laughs> you know, for example, suppose you had a bum squatting in your yard. Or there was the famous case of the columnist William Raspberry. Oh, he, was, the, he was always gassing on in the Washington Post about gun control. Yeah, right, right. You can't let kooks have guns. His son was in the FBI. Oh, that's so Rowan, Carl Rowan. Carl Rowan. Carl Rowan. So Carl Rowan. He had, he had a, the son, the son gave him his FBI, a, an FBI pistol, and so he saw a hippie floating in his swimming <laughs> pool and shot him. See, some would say that that is pushing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just gave him a second shot. A guy who doesn't believe yeah. Well, and presumably Rowan would have said this is a special case. Yeah, he right. did. He did later on. He did. The, uh, yeah, special because I'm Carl Rowe. Exactly. The, but you know, for example, uh, you have we have laws in Rockford. For example, I can't call the cops on people for walking on my lawn unless I have it posted no trespassing, which I did under the uh, advice of the police because of my neighbors across the street. They, they were anarchic and criminal, and so they said, look. 
uh, if they ever do this again, then if your house is posted, but still there, there are rules. So yeah, so uh, Polyphemus certainly, the Greeks didn't behave very well, but they were starving. Right. But, um, and it was typical of Odysseus' crew that they did uh, whatever they saw food. They, they, acted like, they acted like robbers and pirates. And eventually that's what got them killed. Killed the wrong, wrong cow. <laughs> yeah, they killed the wrong cattle. Aren't, isn't that supposed to be Sicily, where the Cyclops lived? It is certainly the, ancient, the, 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 the standard ancient theory, and one of the many reasons is there's a smoking volcano. Hmm. So it would seem to be eastern Sicily, which certainly, you know, where Mount Etna, which is certainly known to the Greeks. That, uh, and who would later settle that? Uh, this is uh, the White Town. Oh, that is the White Town. Okay. <laughs> Would anyone like more white wine? No? No? We're all fine? Good! So, hospitality. So, hospitality, which is, a, which unfortunately it conjures up some of the hospitality suite at a Rotary convention, <laughs> is, you know, is part, is deeply part of the morality of the Homeric world. So when we talked about a little bit about the, uh, the education of Telemachus, uh, Athena takes him traveling and he receives very gracious hospitality from Menelaus and his family and from, uh, from Nestor in Pylos and his family. And, uh, and this involves the ritual exchange of gifts. This involves, you know, the, the you know, the, the welcoming banquet. All of these things. And this is how Telemachus finds out about his father, because all he knows about his father is maybe what Mama has told him. Whereas now he's finding out more than rumor that he is one of the great men in, on the historical stage at this time. And because, and, and remember that 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 uh, Menelaus in Sparta and his brother Agamemnon in Mycenae are the two most powerful men in the Greek world. They're wealthy. They have they have influence everywhere. And then, and then uh, they've got a couple of uh, satellite states like Tiryns with Diomedes. And then over, if you go all the way to the west coast of the Peloponnesus, there's the modern town of Pylos, and a little bit like five miles north of that is, prob is where probably the palace of Nestor was. So you could actually go to these places and see, you know, sort of what they look like. And, uh, and uh, yes? There, in a number of these episodes of um, initial hospitality, um, the person welcomed is recognized as having something a little more yeah. than the average uh, stumble bomb. Yeah. <laughs> and in Odysseus' case, even through the brine and crusting yeah. him and leaves and things like that, the uh, princess there recognizes that he is noble, possibly. She, Nausicaa on, on uh, Scaria, the island of the Phaeacians, she's it, it's funny, we had this friend in graduate school 
who was Sicilian, and he said, notice this scene. He said, all the ugly girls, and we'd have no reason to believe they're ugly, but he said, no. all the ugly girls go running in terror. Oh, it's a naked man! Oh, he's dirty! And then, of course, the, the, the girl is beautiful, royal, wealthy, she stands and says, hmm, husband. <laughs> Doesn't he have a, a piece of brush? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah, a little, yeah, a little, uh, uh, a, little a, a fig leaf. Yeah. But, but, you know, you could imagine, okay, you've got all these 14, 15, 16-year-old girls playing on the beach, and all of a sudden, <laughs> this, this, this monster comes out. But... Yes, she knows. It's not just because he's good looking. You know, she could see that under the brine. But the Homeric Greeks are uh, racists in the sense that they really believe that there are people with divine blood and everybody else. It's a dividing line. And this is like the difference in early Rome between the patricians and the plebeians. So people with divine blood, those are the kings and relatives of the kings. The nobility are all touched with this divinity and you can see them. It's very possible that what we're talking about is people who are purely Greek, which is to say Nord more or less Nordic, and as opposed to the pre-Greek population, which is more or less, say, Basque, you know. Yes? I don't remember the scene, but does Athena sort of make him look better on this? Well, yes, often. But not when he comes out. Well, maybe she gives him an aura, but, but that scene in Scaria where he comes out with... You know, with brine crusted, you know. But uh, now Sika, now Sika, who is, I think, the most charming character in all the Homeric world. You know, she's young. What do you think? 14, 15, 16? Oh, that's good. But she says, you know, she says, Daddy, it's time I got married. <laughs> and so she says, so we have to clean all our, you know, go down and clean the clothes. So the party that she's arranged for the young, the young noble maidens, and although Scaria, it doesn't exist, some people think it's maybe uh, uh, Thera, uh, what, what's Thera called now? Uh, Santorini. Santorini. Santorini, which was a volcanic island. But it, it's clearly an evocation of Minoan, Mycenaean, but I think Minoan more than anything. It's these sweet people, they enjoy life, they're very beautiful, they're not especially warlike. They're, they're not like the Mycenaean Greeks, who are much more aggressive, much more tough. And uh, it's, it always seems to me it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an evocation of what the Greeks remembered of these Minoan towns. But uh, so she she says let's go, we got to go and wash our clothes and everything. They're playing I don't know they're playing ball on the beach. How, how times change. <laughs> and uh, and then this happens. But the point is her mind is already set on the idea of finding a husband. And, um, and here well, she's getting old. Say. Yeah, so well, strange. the thing yeah, right. the thing that I find most interesting <clears throat> is that Odysseus has been offered Circe. 
who is divinely beautiful, Calypso who wants to make him immortal. So you'll live you will live at the Playboy Club forever. Okay. So he turns out all that, and I think that a responsible, normal human being can say, "Well, I don't want that." But now, what about this? You could start your life all over again. You could you can you can forget about your wife. You haven't seen her in 20 years anyway. You can forget about your wife, and you can run off with your 16-year-old secretary, <laughs> and you could start out again. No. And, I mean, Homer really, he just puts it, he puts it in front of you. This is, you know, it's like the temptations of Odysseus, or the temptations of Christ. These are the temptations of Odysseus. And he says, gee, you know, you're sweet. She, we know she's beautiful. And, and her island is about, oh, a thousand times more wealthy and successful than his island. So he chose, he chooses this is again. This is a moral. This is a moral progress. He chooses to reject all of that to go back to his forty-year-old wife and and son because he wants his real life. My dear. I'm sorry again. I'm forgetting the timetable. Has he only gone to the underworld and seen his mother and questioned her about Penelope's papers? I think that's later. That's later. I think that's in between. No, no. So, uh. But of course, he. Oh, Thomas Professor. Oh, yes. Earlier, Mike made reference to his younger students interested in reading the Odysseus, yes, and posing questions. When I taught the Odyssey, my older middle aged students found Odysseus much more interesting than Achilles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For, yeah. For, for many of the reasons that you've already cited, yeah. because, uh, for a variety of reasons, of course, but uh, the idea of, of being able to relate to his persona. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is, it, is his rejection of all that he's offered, does that say more about him and what he felt his responsibility was, or does it say about really Penelope and what his feelings for her were? I think it's not only both that, but it's also what the poet, what Homer reflecting Greek values is saying is, to put it in a really cheap context of Frank Baum, there's no place like home. You have your real, real, real life is the life you've lived, and real life is the life he lived. You know, on Ithaca with Penelope. It's almost a sacramental sense of marriage. Okay, he he'll have, he's having sex with uh, with uh, Calypso, but he so, didn't mean it. Yeah, well, yeah. She meant she nothing to it. Was it the life that he is supposed to lead, or is it that I got to have her? It is. It is real love for her in a way that is not supposed to exist in this early world. But now, but you know from reading this, he loves her in a deep and profound way, which. Yes, it involves sex, but it goes way beyond that. I mean. I mean. The homecoming. Of course, 
I think the best, if you had the best like hundred pages of literature is the end of the Odyssey. Oh, yeah. You have you have him coming back as disguised, a bum, the suffering servant, dressed in rags, abused, despised and rejected, you know, humiliated, whipped, spat upon, and he puts up with all of it because there is a purpose of this. And then the scene and then finally, they say, well, can I try the bow? Mm-hmm. What about it? And he pulls the and he shoots it through the axis, which only he can do, and then throws his robes off, and you realize, hmm, maybe not a bump. <laughs> yeah. And he kills them all. And, but then, that night, of course, he spends with... He's on the bed that he constructed out of a tree that grew up through his palace. Palace. You know. This this house would be would you know he'd be bowing down and worshiping as his gods if he could live in this falling down shack. But so it, 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 the, the, this tree grows up. The bed in the bed is made out of it. And of course, that's how she knows who he really is because he knows the bed he made. And yes, they they make love, and of course Homer, being a Greek, you don't des- you don't describe these things. You simply allude to it. They enjoyed themselves the way the way it's later. You know, you say they enjoy themselves at a banquet. They enjoy themselves, and then they spend the night talking. What else would a what else would man and wife do separated after twenty years? They spend their they spend their time talking, catching up on everything. Cigarettes are yet to be invented. True. <laughs> so, you know, all of this is so incredibly beautiful. And you know, when I read these uh, social story, you know, marital love was discovered only in the eighteenth century. <laughs> and I said, oh, or the love of children was only discovered in the Renaissance. What she. He he says what what his first time you 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 see somebody who are you he says I am Odysseus the father of Telemachus who identifies himself as being the father but he is uh, for all his shortcomings he is the model of family values the sacramental uh, love and marriage was this. Common to that time period of Homer. Where do you get this idea? I believe me, Homer is expressing the norm of Greek civilization that everybody, uh, he's expressing what led up to him, and that it becomes the Bible for afterwards. You know, people talk about, you know, they, they look upon the ancient world as one seamless garment, and so I've read things like, well, obviously, divorce was easy in the Greek world. Okay, here's a question. And, and by the way, that's a normal social historical uh, idea. So here's a, a simple question. How many divorce cases are there in 5th century Athens where we have, we have now we finally have, we have real records. We have all these legal records and things. How many divorce cases? Well, none. Hmm. Because maybe you could repudiate a wife. You, yes, you could kill a wife who was an adulteress. You could do these various things. But the fact is, we have the one divorce case where uh, uh, Alcibiades' wife in the late 5th century tries to run away. He goes and drags her by the hair. She goes to register her divorce, 
at the uh, at the with the, the proper archon, and he drags her by the hair back home. Now he's a terrible husband. He's a terrible human being. But this is one indignity he's not going to put up with. I mean, we're dealing with a society where the assumption is marriage is for life. You know, it's not like our world. It's not like the Roman Empire. Marriage is for life. They could barely conceive of an alternative. So Odysseus' affection for <coughs> Penelope, although heroic, is normative. It's the, it's the, the uh, implication of the poem is this is the way we all are and are supposed to be. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, it's heroic in that most of us don't have to be away for 20 years. Most of us don't have to uh, face the temptation of a witch and a goddess and a 16-year-old uh, knockout girl with lots of money. Most of us don't face that. And maybe some of us would pa fail that test. Oh, I don't know. I've had a so, busy summer, Tom. <laughs> but and so the 500 years from the end of the Trojan War until the the uh, Odyssey and the Iliad are printed, I guess, uh, around about what 750 or something yeah, yeah. like that. Uh, uh, the 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 storytellers who go around Greece telling the story of the Odyssey are in some sense presenting paradigms of proper behavior. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They are presenting, they are first of all taking the paradigms of upper class behavior and then they're exemplifying them. Yeah. And yeah. Homer, what they, they used to say it was the education it was the education of Greece. That was history for Greece, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. 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 It was they regarded it as history in the same way that the Jews regarded the Old Testament as history. Right. And it was history, and it was normative. It told you how to behave. One of the big problems in Homer is the character of Achilles, because Achilles is such a stinker. Yeah. But in my view, and uh, I hope I'm not alone, in my view, he's a negative example. Yes. That is, he, he rejects the normal Greek values of community solidarity, loyalty, friendship, and, and all of his friends tell him that. I mean, Achille, uh, uh, Ajax, his cousin, in, book, at the, in the embassy scene, says, this man, you know, he says, he's a, he's a monster. Uh, men have taken blood money for their brothers and ended a struggle. This man will accept nothing. He has, and he, at the end, when, when he's dragging, this, this, this is disgusting, he's dragging Hector's body around. This is repulsive to the Greek point of view. We find it you know, difficult, but for the Greeks, just outraging a body is horrible. So uh, so the gods say, what are we going to do? And Apollo says, ah, you know, you, he would try to kill us if we stand up against him. That is, he is a, yes, he is a great man, but he is a great man whose greatness has led him into monstrous behavior. Fatal flaw. Yeah. So, uh, and whereas the, the old cliche was that the Iliad is the birth of tragedy and the Odyssey is the birth of comedy because <coughs> it has a happy ending and uh, that's trivializing it, but it, there is some sense in which that's true. Is the Iliad... Is it, Iliad ever taught us that Achilles ever taught as being a hero? 
I can normally fog of memory. I can kind of remember that's the way he was. Yeah, no, normally, nice normally, player. normally. Yeah, normally he is. Now he is a great hero. There's no, there's no getting around it. But uh, and at the, but there is something ter terrifying, oh, awful. I, I don't see him anymore as being a hero. No, no. I, uh, when I was a kid, I thought he was, uh, he was... heroic? What, what is heroic about him? Well, he could kill anybody who gets in his way. That's all right. Yeah, that's... But he's a spoiled brat. He tells Patroclus at, at, at this key scene, he says, what I want is that the Greeks and Trojans will, will exhaust each other, killing each other, and then we can go in, kill everybody, and get all the loot and all the glory. Now... From the, from our point of view, that would be okay in spaghetti western. You know, that's the morality of a Clint Eastwood movie. But from the Greek point of view, it is disgusting. And you know, and and we don't have a lot of comment on this, but the fact is that we know how Greeks. We know that that there that this is in open conflict with Greek morality. So Achilles is wrong. Period. Whereas Odysseus, Odysseus is the counter, you know, he, he has flaws, he has mistakes, but basically his love of family and community is right. And uh, there's so much to learn from these two books because they show us a pre-Christian, even pre-civilized way of looking at the world, which is a moral way of looking of, of looking at these things and uh, and quite apart from the fact that they are two of the most entertaining books, maybe the most entertaining books ever. Have you the reaction of um, critics through the ages to say Odysseus or or the Iliad? Have there been great changes? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I, qualities. I think Achilles gets standardized as a great hero, and we just won't talk about some of these problems. <laughs> Whereas Odysseus gets stigmatized because in a, in a civilized society where truth telling becomes important, you could say, "Well, he's a liar. He's a cheater. He's a trickster," <laughs> and that is part of his character. But he is. Uh, it's um, and so that becomes overemphasized. So that it, in the in the next thousand years, and and that's what Dante picks up on is this later tradition whereby Odysseus is just a trickster. And there's all this stuff about the. Uh, there's a lot of literature. You get it. You get it in uh, Pindar's Odes, and you get it in tragedy. The so-called hoplon crisis, the judgment of arms. After Achilles dies, they have a, the Greeks, the Greek chiefs meet and they say, who will get the arms of Achilles? Ajax, being noble, strong, strong as a bull, big guy, cousin of Achilles, he said, they belong to me. And they are awarded to Odysseus. And now, in the early tradition, this is felt to be right because Odysseus is also wise. You know, he's got a brain. Later on, this becomes the wily trickster who cheats Ajax of what he deserves. 
and uh, and it's and of course the the uh, the Ajax of Sophocles is a wonderful play. Ajax uh, is driven mad by Athena, and he kills a bunch of sheep, thinking it's the Greek chiefs. And so they come in and they say, "Well, you have to die." You so you know you is you in effect you killed all of us. It's just there was a delusion on you, and so he's executed. But uh, then you know Odysseus, Odysseus comes in and uh, it's ambiguous because he begins as just the trickster who cheated Ajax, but he learns humanity. But this. This, this notion of the judgment of arms becomes a kind of vehicle for anti-Odysseus rhetoric. <coughs> My dear wife had a good friend who wrote one of the worst dissertations in history on, uh, on this subject. And, and, and uh, one of the problems is like in the, in the Pindaric Odes, all of the odes which are negative on Odysseus were written for people on the island of Aegina, where they tra uh, happened to translate, uh, uh, trace their ancestry to Ajax. So the fact that he's writing an ode for an athletic victor on his island, and they claim that Ajax is their hero, it does not necessarily reflect anything deep. What's the next? Oh yeah, next month. Next month, second Thursday. Um, after much consideration, I decided on Trollope's The Warden. The Warden? The Warden. A very early short novel of Anthony Trollope. It's the novel which, if you understand The Warden, you will understand all of Trollope. It is a send-up of the liberal mind. And I don't mean the 20th century. I mean what we would now call the conservative mind. That is, people who want to make the life life better by destroying institutions and making you free. It's a very, it's the first of the, of the so-called Barsetshire novels. It is very funny. It's a little bit too savage, but uh, it, uh, it's a good way of talking about classical liberalism and... Uh, it's short. It's short. It's short, charming, and uh, it's wonderful. It's It's called the warden. The warden. The warden. We'll, we'll send out. We'll send out a follow-up email. Uh, it, it, it's only about two hundred pages, and it's really a charming book. It's it's a little bit. Uh, he goes over the top, attacking the conservatives, which is very funny. Uh, there's a, the conservative Archdeacon Grantly and his family are portrayed as uh, disgusting. But, but, uh, but in later novels, Archdeacon Grantly becomes my personal hero in English fiction as a hardcore, unrepentant uh, right-winger. Are we going to do Raymond Chandler fairly soon? We will. Oh, we will. Good. Uh, as you, you know my affection for Chandler and for Hammond. Thank you for joining us this evening. And a special thank you for tonight's hostess, the gracious Mrs. Thomas Fleming, who welcomed us into her house and provided some delicious Greek hors d'oeuvres and adult beverages. You can find more information and her sign up to receive emails so you don't miss any of our cultural commentary at www.fleming.foundation. Or for specific inquiries, email me at james at fleming.foundation. 
please consider joining us in person. Although the recording can give you a flavor of the evening, it is far short of the conviviality and camaraderie experienced at these fun-filled evenings. Thank you and goodbye.